Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is our fifth episode in a winging it series on the life of Luther, and we've gotten to his university days. The last episode, we talked about uh, what it's like to be in Erfurt at that time, but then also a little bit kind of the, the philosophy that he would have been wrestling with and studying at the University of Erfurt. And today, we're going to talk maybe a little bit about his day as a university student and then transition into how he is going to uh, make the vow. He's going to make the jump for being a university student uh, into an Augustinian friar. So uh, what kind of strikes me, Wade, is when I think about him being a university student and then and then being a, a monk, you're literally like blocks away, right? I mean, he doesn't he doesn't even have to change his mailing address. Yeah, I mean, this kind is a huge thing. move existentially, but mm-hmm. you're, you're, yeah, you're just geographically, you're going down the street. And even his day-to-day life. So in the University of Bursa, the, it's not, uh, Hendrix says, it's not like your normal dormitory here on, you know, the University of whatever in America. Uh, it's very structured, 4 a.m., uh, you know, classes start, get up at 4 a.m. as a cohort, you eat your meals as a cohort, you uh, start academic exercises at 6 p.m., they lock you in, all these kinds of stuff. Now, boys are going to be boys, as we talked about last time, and there's going to be some flaunting of the rules, and that's certainly different different than when it's going to be in the monastery, although there's going to be some rule breaking in the monastery, of course, as well. And so his day-to-day life, um, his geographical uh, situation, those things aren't going to change. He really went to one kind of monastery to another kind of monastery. Um, Even the academic exercises, it's not like all of a sudden he's going to stop doing academia. He's going to go right into being uh, studying to be a priest. He's going to be forced into uh, scripture, which is a great benefit to him. Um, He's eventually, as a a friar, going to be teaching. He's going to be studying. He's going to get his his doctorate uh, in theology. And so the day-to-day life, in a lot of ways, was didn't look that much bigger. And and maybe one thing that I, that is a big deal to me because I was wrong on this growing up, and and even in my being a pastor, thinking about Luther just being in the monastery, cloistered away, and even just all of monks at that time, just in their solitary cells, praying the whole time. They would have had a cell to study, but they kind of would have been sleeping and kind of big, big rooms together and, and taking their meals together. I have this, and, and, and I still use this, and I, I shouldn't maybe, but when I talk about vocation and Luther's kind of switch, um, I say, you know, Luther was in a, a vertical re- ethical relationship with God. Somehow, some way, he does something, um, and God does something for him. However it works out, it was a vertical relationship, and that switches then when he no longer has to please God. He couldn't do it anyway. Um, now he's in a horizontal uh, ethical relationship with neighbor. And so I kind of make the joke, you know, well, he spent all this time um, thinking and praying and studying, trying to make uh, uh, himself worthy before God. And once he's freed from that, what's a monk to do with all his time and energy, right? Well, nothing left to do but to live uh, and love. Well, the truth of the matter is, is he was just as busy then. And he and the monks in general, were they were doing things for other people. It's not like um, they weren't serving their neighbors necessarily. I mean, for crying out loud, they were making beer, a lot of them, you know? And it's just that there was an ethical 
wrong orientation there. That was the main problem. And so when we think about Luther going from a university student to being a monk, um, it's really, as you said, an existential move more than it is anything else. So here he is as a student. He's going to enter law school. And um, and I, if I have my dates right, we're talking 1505 now. Uh, it's a big deal. His father buys him the books uh, um, to be um to be a student in law school, very expensive books. He's very proud of his son. Uh, he's going to be upset that his son then um, goes in a different direction, although I think he's going to be proud of his son later on anyway. It just was, it was a different path that uh, uh, he was going to take. So let's, let's talk about, was this a one-time event, this storm, as you already know, is coming in the story? Was there indications that he was thinking about this before? Did he just hate lawyers and law? I'll kick it to you, Wade, and talk about this change from going from law school to the decision to become an Augustinian friar. Yeah, and we hit on a little bit in the previous episode. Um, we see glosses, we see Luther writing already in books, um, during his university education, before entering the monastery, about theological topics. Um, for instance, uh, a name was come up in previous episodes, Elizabeth of Hung- Hungary, who had been at the Wartburg, um, and so she's connected to Eisenach, which was a family connection for Luther. Um, she's mentioned in a book, and Luther provides the dates of her life, um, but especially some writing he had done on, in the marginal notes um, regarding Romans 117. Um, Theology would have been part of the edu- his education, and he's clearly thinking about things theologically and thinking about something that would be very formative for him, especially Romans one seventeen that the just shall live by faith. Uh, we also know he's a university student, a, a master's student, and this is a time of life when you're thinking about your future. It just is built into education. This is meant to be a formative period. And so even when we have students here who have declared a major, that doesn't mean they've now stopped thinking about what the future will hold. And it's a time when you're thinking about purpose and meaning. And so he's obviously already wrestling with such things, as as well as with a strong attachment to home. We've talked about he was always very much a, a guy from Mansfeld. And uh, very much he realizes he is in many ways, the incarnation of his father's dreams for the family. Uh, he, he bears that burden, and this is something maybe who have been first-generation college students know. The generations of sacrifice that maybe have gone into uh, you taking on that mantle to go and study. And so on top of all of this, there's going to be a few instances that we know lead him to think about life and death even more. Uh, the the first one of those is going to be that uh, a fellow student um, who it appears he was close with had died. Uh, and while there's there's always been young people who die, right, this happens, the same then was true of now. It tended to be if you could make it through childhood, the odds of you outside of war or plague living at least into your late 30s or 40s were pretty darn good. So this was not a an age at which you would expect someone to die as a university student. And it appears this hit Luther hard. And we know throughout life, people's death hit Luther hard. His father's. When yeah. his father dies and he's at the Coburg is, is a big instance. Um, when his daughter dies, uh, when he loses children. But he 
he was very connected to his friends throughout life. Uh, we know in this regard, too, that there's friends we weren't as aware of before that he kept in contact with from his childhood who weren't necessarily, uh, you know, fellow reformers by any means, but he had a connection with them. And so it appears he went into at least some measure of dep- depression, melancholy maybe is a better word, from this. Luther throughout life wrestles with melancholy. We, we, we now talk of depression. If you look at Lucas Chronic and um, Albrecht Durer, they both have paintings about melancholia, melancholy. It's There was this recognition that people can get into a funk, um, which isn't the best word for it either, uh, but uh, that people can be overcome emotionally, mentally, spiritually. These things are all connected in ways that inhibit their normal personality, uh, their schedule of daily life, things of this sort. At the same time when he's traveling, uh, is this back to Mansfeld or he's going to Erfurt? I believe he's going back to <coughs> um, back to Mansfeld this time. Uh, and, you know, it was customary to carry a sword, you know, who probably shouldn't carry swords, law students, theologians, philosophers, because practically speaking, they probably not had a lot of training with that. And so somehow he manages to cut his leg, um, and we think he severed an, auter- an artery, um, and he has to literally plug this wound. Finally, help is able to come, but this was really close to a brush with death, and so he appeals to Mary and says, Mary, save me. Interesting, we talked about the perspective Luther has when he talks about things years later. He'll look back on this and say, God saved me from dying while I was calling on Mary instead of him. Now, if he had stayed in uh, in his beliefs at this time, he would have said, Mary saved me. But he's going to later in life say, see, God delivered me in his goodness so that I would come to the time when I knew to trust in Christ in, in such instances. And then the third big instance is going to be the one. So that, the lesson is, if you want to live, cry out to a false god, so then the god, and then God will save you. And don't carry swords. Yes. Okay. Um, this is I'm I'm always kind of drawn to that. You can get these concealed carry permits, and part part of me like really wants one just because like oh you know, but I know. Don't. It amazes me that people put guns in holsters and take them out and that and oh. don't shoot themselves. I really think I would injure myself. Uh, just shout out to the people of Woodlake, my former parish. Uh, I was slowly uh, made aware that um, there were nice old grandmothers who had pistols in their purses in church. And uh, and they probably were equipped to handle it. If you had had one, you I might wouldn't have, have been. Yourself. Yeah, absolutely not. I couldn't do that. But you know, grandma uh, so and so. I like could. the idea, and I, I think this is maybe why he had this sword. It's a nice idea, right? Like. I've, I've got this. It's if a someone, dangerous place. Someone tries to rob me. I'm gonna, but I would hurt myself with the gun more than I would hurt the right, robber either. Right. You should not have weapons. Okay. I'm glad you agree with me. Um, the third thing, though, is the most famous, uh, and it's not apocryphal. Many of the famous things about this time period are apocryphal. But he's traveling uh, this time, I believe, back to Eisenach and not home. Um, no. Let me see. Uh, yes, going to Erfurt. And he doesn't cut himself, but there's a thunderstorm. And here you have to understand a number of things. A, the best illustration would probably be if you've ever been out on a hike and you're pretty sure you know the way back, but you're a couple miles into the hike and a storm comes 
or if you've been out on a boat and you're a ways away from shore and a storm comes. And it's dark. There's no electricity. Right. You feel helpless. You're disoriented. And then it was widely believed, right, the devil could bring storms upon, which is part of the reason you would ring church bells during the storm. Uh, There was all kinds of superstitions associated with this on top of it. Imagine a lightning strike nearby or just, I mean, thunder is terrifying when you're a kid and you're in your... You know, now I can go watch a thunderstorm and think it's pretty cool. But this was a terrifying moment. And once again, he's going to call out to a female saint. He's going to call out to St. Anne or St. Anna, who is the patron saint of minors. And so he can never quite leave Mansfeld behind. It makes sense that he would call to her. Um, St. Anne also, my connection would be, unless I'm mistaken, this is the mother of Mary. Yeah, mother of Mary. So... So he's kind of calling to the family. He's tried Mary. Now he's moved on to Mary's mom. And I don't know who Mary's grandma is, but maybe she would have been next. And uh, he not only calls out, as with Mary, he doesn't just say, St. Anna, St. Anne, save me. But he vows he'll become a monk if he's if he's spared. And uh, he's spared. And if anything... And now Luther- he's got a vow to keep. Right. And we don't appreciate that in our modern day when you make a promise... You keep it. And I think there's something, you know, he, when his, his friends are trying to talk him out of it, part of it is I made a promise. Right. And, and here too, it's important to know there's lots of people who did break these such vows at that time. But Luther is one who, when he's thinking about his relationship with God, that always becomes a very serious thing. And, uh, and here you have a God who knows he's made a promise. And, and then when, the monastic system is under attack later, uh, you know, a decade or so later, and you have a lot of people who want to get out of those uh, monastic vows, both female and male. Luther Luther doesn't just go, hey, everybody out. He struggles with that vow thing very early on, and then, and then to say, okay, was this particular vow in this particular situation uh, not lawful, illegal? This, this, this was a this was a 13-year-old girl. She can't be held to this vow kind of stuff. I mean, he comes along a little bit um, uh, more universal with, you know, all these vows are, are suspect. But the vow was such an important thing for him. It's not, and it's not something, it's not something I don't think we, we fully understand in our modern day where we break promises all the time. And uh, interestingly with this, Luther later will comment on this and say, oh, when he cried out for St. Anne or for Anna, um, in German, this even more sounds like it, but it sounds like the Hebrew word for grace, um, which is, right, what, it sounds like Hana, right? This is a, and so he says, when I called out, God heard me yell, grace. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, now that, he made tongue in cheek, right? That's, I believe that's a Tishrating comment, and he's kind of having a little little fun there. But, um, He'll reinterpret both these events, but he doesn't reinterpret it as, I shouldn't have become a monk. In fact, Luther really is slow to, get, to take off the habit. Mm-hmm. He, he gladly would have remained a monk even if he's by himself. His problem isn't with monasticism as a thing even. It's, as, it's the notion that monasticism is going to earn you favor with God and even more earn others favor with God through you. And so uh, this, this becomes the clincher. But it appears to be the climax of a number of events and a lot of thinking that he's probably been wrestling with. Um, it's it's not as if it 
came out of a vacuum. At least we don't think that it it was. Yeah, and there's some. It seems to be some evidence that he took a, a time a, a leave of absence. And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong. He starts his law studies, then he takes a leave of absence, then he comes back, um, and then then there is that story. So. We don't know what that leave of absence was for, what's going on, but you and I, dealing with college students all the time, uh, when a kid says, I got to take a semester off, um, there, there could be a lot of reasons. It could be family issues, it could be uh, you know financial reasons, uh, but all of it is going to entail, okay, what am I doing here? And he's not going to just simply join the first monastery he finds or the first like, you know, recruiter with a clipboard, <clears throat> hey, you know be a monastery of one, you know, you want to sign on. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's going to look for a good fit. Yeah, and he, then he goes to the observant Augustinians, and later this is going to play out, how observant should the Augustinians be, and a debate within the Augustinian order of uh, who gets to be in charge of the Augustinian houses in Germany. Um, you know, the observant ones want to take over, right, the other ones and bring them up to snuff. But it, it, it says something about his personality that if he's going to go in, he's going to go in. He's not going to the Army. He's going to the Marines. Right. He's not going to, um, he's not going to go to the Dominicans. <laughs> he's going to go to the observant Augustinians. He's going to go in head first. And I think a couple things with this, too. The, the Augustinian monastery, there's some connection to the university mm-hmm. um, and to learning, right? Spalatin is a university professor. He's going to be, I believe, the first professor of biblical theology in Wittenberg as well. Luther is taking his place there. Um, so it, it is a place where he will still be able to be uh, intellectually stimulated. And he clearly wants to do theological exploration and dig in, and he's going to be able to do so there. Yeah, and then and then just, you know, God's providence, too. I mean, Staupitz is, is, there's going to be connections that are going to be made there for Luther that are going to be important for, for the Reformation. I did and, say Staupitz, not Spalatin, by the way, too, right? I, no, you said Spalatin the first time. But this time I meant Staupitz was Staupitz. the biblical theology professor in Wittenberg. Not, I, I do that, yeah. I apologize, so... Yeah, those are two ones I get mixed up too as well. But but Spalatin also is going to be um, his good friend, and will be a counselor for the elector. Yeah, and he's going to be he's from the Augustinian order too. Becomes a priest, and then eventually becomes. I don't the, know if right? Spalatin ever was an. I think he. he I be. I want to say that he actually became a priest first and had a preaching duties before he went there. But we'll, we'll figure that out. And if we don't find it by the end of this episode, we'll correct ourselves by the next time. But anyway, th- there's some providence, God's providence here, or God's guiding probably is a better way to better way to put it, um, that he is going to be forced to continue his education. The, maybe not forced, He was ordained but, a priest in 1508. He taught people in the monastery. Okay. But I don't know that he himself became a, a monk. Um just one more thing with that, that before I forget it, I wanted to connect. So he's going to choose the Augustinian, but also he's going to be a friar, not a monk. Mm-hmm. Now, he's going to refer to him as a monk because a monk is like a catch-all phrase at mm-hmm. this point for one of the spirituales, someone who's lead, leaving, leading um, the spiritual life as opposed to right the, pers- the lay person living in the world. But a friar is not connected to a place. A, a monk, if we're going to distinguish monk and friar, monk, narrowly speaking, would be your landed, right? So if you're a Benedictine, you belong to that monastery, and that's where you're going to spend your life. And you're going to aura at labor. You're going to work and pray there and study there. 
Um, friars fit very well in the medieval context um, in urban areas because friars often would be preaching, teaching. They weren't bound. They could be moved about. And so Spalatin is going to move Luther, transfer Luther from Erfurt to Wittenberg, not just to the University of Wittenberg, but to the Augustinian Monastery there, which, by the way, now is the Black Cloister. That will become Luther's home after the Reformation. Um, so if you go to the Luther House in Wittenberg, you're going to the Augustinian Monastery there. Um, so this will be important, too. Luther is not joining a monastery where he's going to be completely isolated and secluded from the world, um, but one through which uh, he will be able, in a limited fashion, right, this is a break with the world, um, but to engage possibly through preaching and teaching, which he will. That being said, when he prepares to leave and he has his last supper celebration with his friends, which is a pretty lavish celebration, and then he says, you know, now you see me, but then soon you'll see me no more, and they weep, right? They don't want him to go in. Uh, this is a um, a life moment, mm -hmm. and he is making that clear. He intends this to be a rupture, a break with his previous life, whatever that entailed. Um, and so I don't want me making that emphasis that he's not going to be completely, he's not going to be completely um, isolated and silent, but I don't want that to downplay. This is a, a radical change in his life. Yeah, and I think to our original point, like he's just going down the street. However, this is a huge deal. They're, they're saying goodbye to their friend, Martinez, um, and now he's going to be, well, he's going to be something different, right? And um, and they're not going to have the same relationship anymore. Uh, maybe, Wade, you want to talk about um, what, what a religious experience this was, not just, okay, I'm having this religious experience, but putting on the monk's garb was like putting on the baptismal gown even even better, even more important, like it was a, a better baptism sort of thing. Because um, I, th I think that's important for us to understand for Luther's mindset right there, and then later on the, his change. I think two things with there, and hopefully I'll hit on both, is um, first the baptism point, and then hopefully I'll come back to evangelical councils. So remind me if I missed that, Mike. But uh, this is, you, you hit on a very good point. Still in Roman Catholic theology today, but especially an emphasis in medieval theology, was baptism wipes your slate clean, right? Original sin wiped away. Lutheranism says it forgives the guilt of original sin, but we still have the old Adam, right? This is the symbol, and this will be important for Luther um, because the old Adam didn't stay behind when he went in the monastery. But, uh, Even though he tried to get rid of them. Right. And so in many ways, the second plank has been called baptism, the first plank, the second plank being um, confession, what we in Lutheranism tend to call absolution. We emphasize the forgiveness of sins. But that title, confession, right, emphasizes the act of confession. Um, and even more than that, so the step, the additional step you could take if you were beyond that uh, would be um, to put on a new robe or gown, and we think of the baptismal imagery that's so rich in Protestantism and Lutheranism of that robe of righteousness. This was joining the A-team of the church. You were not only joining the monastery for your salvation, you were joining literally for the, the salvation of your neighbors, um, of those who have died in the faith. You were now one of that class of people that was to overflow with merits, whether it be through the masses you said, through the works you did, through the devotion you showed. Um, you were not only supposed to balance your personal sheet 
rap sheet with God. Um, you were supposed to go beyond that. And so this was, uh, there's a lot of symbolism in becoming a monk and in what they wore and did that we would look at and say, man, that's that's baptismal symbolism, and that's very purposeful. And part of the monastic life was then confession. Everyone was supposed to go to confession, but this was just a, an, um, a central part of your life. In fact, when we study something like the English Reformation, we'll look at the monks in the English Reformation, and some people will say, see how naughty they were? Well, no, you're looking at records. They were mandated to confess to the bishop at certain times. And so they're racking their brains for things to confess, and then the bishop's writing it down. Um, if he had done this for everybody, you'd, <laughs> you would go, man, these monks were actually behaving compared to the, the common people. And we know Luther himself will take confession very seriously so that Staupitz will say, you know, you've never confessed anything remotely interesting to me. But Luther will sometimes leave and turn around and go back in for fear that he had not enumerated everything uh, enough. Um, the other thing then, this notion of evangelical councils. Um, when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, Lutherans can get a little bit nervous because we look at the Sermon on the Mount and we say, man, um, seems like Jesus is... Uh, um, given a lot of commands there. There's a lot of law. And, you know, I don't know that we can keep those commands. And how do these fit with the gospel? Well, I don't think it's an issue at all. I mean, I think the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness ex surpasses, exceeds that of the Pharisees, I think Jesus is getting at something important. But I think Jesus is also saying something, too, that gospel obedience, Christian obedience, is so something different than worldly obedience. Um, it's from the heart. And so he'll say, you know, it's not just don't commit adultery, but hey, guess what? I'm going to create in you a new heart because your sins all are coming from your heart. That's the origin. But, um, you know, evangelical councils, the, the notion was, and I hope I'm using the right term for this, um, but this was something you would do to go above and beyond. And they especially were drawn from the Sermon on the Mount. Um, but three of the keys were poverty um, and chastity and obedience. And so the church was kind of saying, God has given a lot of commands, and all God's commands are important, but the average person, they have enough to worry about these commands. And then when you go above and beyond, you're going to be the ones who can even handle the extra. And if you think of the rich man who comes to Jesus, this is kind of what he's doing. What must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, okay, I'll play the law game, keep the commandments. And what does the rich young man say? He says, I've done that. Do you got anything more? <coughs> And that's where Jesus goes back to the first commandment and says, fine, sell everything, give it to the poor, and uh, come follow me, and he can't do it. Which I think plays into why, for Luther, the first commandment is the lens through which all the other commandments are interpreted. Right? Every sin is a sin against the first commandment. And that makes sense as he his experience going into the monastery would explain a lot of that. Um, but So you're not only taking on this new baptismal thing, um, you're called upon to a new standard. And not just in the way that a pastor is held to a different standard of, <clears throat> you know, um, keep watch of yourself, your life, and doctrine. Um, and we have the, you know, the qualifications for the ministry. But, I mean, specifically, you're responsible on behalf of the church for keeping this certain commandments that we can't possibly expect everyone else to keep. Yeah, and so you start to see then sort of the burden that's going to be really placed on Luther by himself. Not just not just the Augustinian order or whatever. He's going to take it, or better yet, he's going to take it seriously, right? And then we're going to have eventually, um, you know, Stalpitz coming in into the scene. And uh, there's going to be uh, uh, some very 
deep wrestling with Luther, where do I stand before God? Because if this is true, if this is how I get right with God, and I'm being honest with myself, then I don't really have any hope. And then starts coming um, the ideas that God is that monster to him. And uh, that's where I think it's really, he's really going to start to hit rock bottom. And a monster of his own creation, which gets again at Luther, will say, well, you have... You have the God you see, um, faith in Christ, right? You see a very different God. Uh, so Luther has external pressures too, but he internalizes these to a very great extent. You start to see, okay, what's law, what's gospel here? And, and, and Luther, this is a very serious theological conundrum for him. So we, we need to not think of Luther going, okay, He's in this medieval system, and then boom, he has his tower experience, and then he has the gospel, and then everything's fine. He's already developing by not only his study, being forced into the Psalms especially, but also being forced into Scripture then as um, as as a student and a teacher, because he is both student and teacher as he is a friar. Um, he's he's. He's thinking about these things theologically and systematically as much as he as much as Luther thinks systematically with those things. So a combination of those lived experiences and then also being uh, looking at scripture devotionally, but also um, academically, uh, it all comes together. And you can see then uh, you later a little bit more maturity, a little bit more uh, mature in fifteen eighteen to say, boy, you're, there's not really a theology of the cross, you are a theologian of the cross, right? And it's both and. It's not just an academic exercise, it's not just a feeling, um, but it's an experience as the Word of God reads you and not necessarily the other way around. So uh, I'll give you the last word here, but before that, I think we're about at our time, and I think uh, stay with us for our next episode. We'll probably talk a little bit more about the monastic life and, 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 and Luther, and then maybe his ordination and the relationship he had with his father. Yeah, I really think the next session yeah. could get a lot into be- and, his or- ordination and relationship. Yeah, and I don't know that we will even get further than that, than just uh, his ordination and relationship with his father, and so we're, we're still a ways from from October uh, 31st, 1517, but that's okay. That's what we kind of intended. And, and I think even after that, uh, you know, we'll, we'll debate whether the trip, how important the trip to Rome was. His early um, uh, lectures on Aristotle at Wittenberg in 1508 before he becomes actually a professor. And there's, there's a lot going on there before we even get to where we normally start, which is 1517. Yeah. And I'm, I'm digging what you had to say there. And I think it, um, you, you really hit the nail on the head with some important stuff. We're going to see here, too, that Luther's theology, as it's shaped in all of these experiences, is never going to be an abstract, um, detached thing. Uh, Luther is a an academic theologian. He's a theologian and an academic, and I mean of outstanding caliber, right? He's going to be Dr. Luther. But his theology is always done in the context of experience. And, and so when we think of Luther saying three things make a theologian, oratio, prayer, meditatio, meditation upon the word, and tentatio, this tentatio is really going to play in to the university in the monastic years. And as you said, God's word and theology are being done to him as much as he's going to do them. And this is important for us to understand it, too, because think about how in your life you've processed things differently based on the experiences you're going through. 
Um, and so theology for us as well is going to be experienced throughout life. Law and gospel is experienced throughout life. This is why a pastor, hopefully, uh, you and Kent both made me feel bad saying you throw out your sermons when you're done with them. But I think there's something cool to that, that you're able to do that. Because while the text will be the same the next time, and this is not to say the truth of the, te- the text changes, you won't be the same. And your congregation might not be in the same place or your family. And God's word is so powerful and so good that when you go to it, right, in those situations, there's going to be even, um, it's important Luther came from a mining family, right? There's going to be even more things you can mine from that. And what do you do? Part of the reason that Luther's father later in life dies uh, not at the pinnacle of his wealth is because as the mines got deeper, it got harder and harder to dig and more and more expensive to do. Uh, In some ways, too, that's going to be true of theology. The more we are pushed into the scriptures, deeper into our need for Christ, not growing out of it, the mind gets deeper and deeper, and sometimes the tentatio gets more and more real. Um, But that's also where sometimes we find the real treasures. Absolutely, and that that whole onfectum thing, uh, I think Kittleson talks it blitzkrieg right you know it's something that's done to you uh it's we're going to keep those things in the back of our mind as we've developed this so we may bring in the theologian of the cross concept or the onfectung or law and gospel and we hope that we're not overwhelming you with theological concepts but maybe teasing you for later down the line when we start talking probably more accurately about his theology in a historical way because this is when he wrote the you know um, um, you know the Babylonian captivity of the church for example and hopefully we can we can pull back from those historical things so um, until then the next time when we get into his monastic life and his ordination we're going to leave you to let the bird fly. Every evening when the sun goes down. My party and I begin to cry. I don't care what the people are thinking. I'm not drunk, I'm just a drink. I set him up another round. I set him up another round. I set him up another round. One more round won't get me down. And I said, honey, honey, I don't care what the people are thinking. I'm not drunk, I'm just a